The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. There was a war on history and it was led from the top. Four. We can go for a Nando's chicken, okay, on, on the state. That will help the recovery. You tell people that their democratic vote is cancelled, they don't just all go home and take up knitting. Well, I'm not sure the Scouts would get away with that today. <laughs> One. We have liftoff. And it's blast off number 10. Here we go again, touching down for our weekly visit to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Liam Halligan and ordinarily Alison Pearson. Today, though, Alison's on holiday, and I'm delighted to be joined by former Labour MP, campaigner extraordinaire, and all-round fabulous person, Kate Howie. Kate, a huge welcome. Well, thank you, and it's, it's, it's lovely to be on Planet Normal. It's a big, big shoes to follow in Alison, but uh, looking forward to it. It's great to have you with us, Kate. So last week, we featured one of the most important Planet Normal interviews we've had. We've interviewed all kinds of dignitaries, luminaries, experts... We've interviewed MI6 boss Richard Dearlove, Bank of England Governor Mervyn King, the US novelist Lionel Shriver. But last week, Alison spoke to a district nurse who came on anonymously, someone that we've called Holly. In that interview, Holly told us from the NHS front line, it looks like the lockdown's been costing more lives than it's saved from where she's standing. And lots of hospitals aren't providing non-COVID care, despite the fact there's available capacity. That means a big build-up of cancers that haven't been treated, plenty of GPs failing to turn up. I know you listened to Holly's interview, Kate. What did you think? Well, I I thought it was a it was really moving interview when you listened to the whole thing and heard just what it was like to be at the really sharp end of, of what's been happening. You know, we've all been in this bubble for months and hearing about things on the BBC, if I'm allowed to mention that awful word at the moment. And then you hear someone like Holly talking about what it really was like and worryingly really adding to sort of the kind of all the various things that we've heard from friends and neighbours and so on about apocryphal stories that actually, from what she was saying, are clearly very, very true about you know, GPs not responding well, about people just being left at home and not being able to access what was normal services. And I, I just don't understand it because initially the whole lockdown was to prevent the NHS from being overcrowded and, and, and collapsing. And that was very clear that that was done quite shortly after the whole lockdown. And, and yet no, hospitals were sitting there and nobody seemed to be able to get access for what you would call normal treatments it was quite quite horrifying and i and i just hope and it probably will but i just hope that the health minister actually sits and listens to holly's interview because i think he would want to ask some questions as well and you're a very experienced politician of course how do you think this public inquiry is going to go do you think the tories will deliberately point the finger of blame somewhere and if so where I just hope it's not going to last as long as, say, for example, the uh, the Bloody Sunday inquiry, you know, which went on for something like 10 years. Uh, it, it's People won't want it to drag on and on and on because then as it distance, you know, removes people's memories of things. I would hope, I would really, really hope that it would be in everyone's interest for people to be completely honest yeah. and and 
open but but it, the problem is if 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 there's this absolute fear all the time that you know people who made genuine mistakes are going to be completely ruined for life in whatever job they were in then we won't get that honesty which is needed and I think you know I think we have to accept this was something new that people didn't really know how to handle it all happened very very quickly and yes mistakes were made but there's no point, you know, using it as just a, 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 and that, that's where the opposition has to be careful that they're not just going to use it as a tub something anti-government inquiry. I couldn't agree more. The emphasis must be on lessons learned. There must be an assumption that people, you know, be they politicians, civil servants, other kinds of public officials were acting in good faith. No one, no one went into this trying to make it worse. There are obviously were decisions made with life and death implications where with the benefit of hindsight, different decisions would have been made. We were all learning as we were going along, weren't we? The science is still not anything like settled. The science is just an ongoing row between scientists about what's actually between happening. Exactly. And, and and then we lose sight of, of you know, day-to-day stuff. And that's why, again, that interview with Holly was so good because it wasn't from a scientific background of somebody who's got, you know, had no real contact with what was happening. She knew what was going on. And we've got to get people like her talking to the inquiry whenever it happens. Now, the main news this week, Kate, has been that Boris Johnson has declared the beginning of a second wave, as he sees it, of the coronavirus pandemic across Europe. And he's defended the UK's decisions to impose travel restrictions in Spain. This is a pretty big call by the Prime Minister, isn't it? It's it's not just a big call for the individuals who've been affected and all those families who went abroad feeling that they were finally getting that break from you know months of 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 sort of misery but it's it's also huge i think economically and i mean you'll know you'll have worked that out far more than than i would liam i mean the the the, the, the real issue in terms now of all the the side-on effects from aeroplanes not going and the whole travel industry and all of that is just really horrendous and just as they were beginning to see some hope that was that was what was so upsetting for people and but you know there are an awful lot of people still going to fly out and if they could just get this situation where you can come back and be tested quickly and then be tested again in a few days but you know again I I'm not sure why they had to go for the whole of, for example, Spain and go for the islands when when the, the, the figures look so low there. But I suppose it just made it almost easier, you know, for them to say Spain as a whole. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, th- I think the, I think it's it's certainly, I think, damaged a lot of relationships in the sense that people really thought things were beginning to get better and then suddenly this happens and it just ruins. And there's been a lot of sort of, I think snobbery around too about people, you know, well, why were people going off to Spain? And it's all, you know, I, I, I think I, I don't blame anyone wanting to get away. And many of them had booked their holidays a long time in advance, hadn't they? It wasn't even as if they, and some some obviously went last minute. But it's it's the people who really feel that things perhaps have been slightly exaggerated and overplayed and can afford to, to take time off when they come back will still go. They will and... and- you say, rightly so, this has knocked a lot of people sideways. Pedro Sanchez, the Spanish Prime Minister, has called the quarantine unjust. Uh, this is obviously you know, a big part of the Spanish economy is, is tourism. 
We've got 600,000 or so, an estimated 600,000 or so Brits on holiday in Spain who will have to go into quarantine, uh, we think, when they come back. It's partly because people tested after they came back from Spain, not the airport, of course, we don't have that, but tested after they came back from Spain anyway. Mm -hmm. There was a high incidence. But also, if you look at the raw numbers themselves, the average daily cases in Spain are now up at 43 per million, whereas in the UK, it's just 10 per million. So there is a big distinction in France, by the way, it's 14 cases per million. That's average daily increase in the number of cases per million. So Spain does seem like an outlier. Yeah. I mean, Spain's performing worse now than, than Russia, which is 40 cases every day per million. Bulgaria, 35. Those East European countries have had pretty high incidences. Germany is at seven cases per million. So yeah. you, you wouldn't often get the impression if you watch uh, the news in the UK, but the UK is now pretty much on level pegging with Germany when it comes to the very, very low number of cases, uh, average daily new cases per millions of people. Are they, we are we are doing, I mean, the, the media generally, I think, with a few exceptions, have wanted to paint the negativeness all of it, all the time. And, you know, even in I, Northern Ireland hasn't had any deaths now for something like 15 days. And, you know, there are parts of the United Kingdom where it's completely... There's just nothing, nothing um, happening in terms of either new cases or, or deaths. But I, what's worrying about Spain, as I understand, it's it's beginning to affect younger people more. And we've all been pretty clear that you know this isn't so worrying for young people. But of course, in Spain, where perhaps there's been more people, young people out and around in the sunshine and on beaches and parties and things, that it's it's beginning to. And that that would be worrying, and that would then start to make people who thought, well, they had no chance of, of of getting it, or if they did get it, it wouldn't be very serious. And I think that that is a worry. But I think we've done we've done ex- extremely well, and if we can just keep the way it is at the moment, then I see no reason why people can't start going back you know, into offices. But I don't know what's happened to the Prime Minister calling last week for the civil service, civil servants to go back. But they should be going back. If anyone's going to set an example, it has to be at that level of of the um, institutions, doesn't it? Indeed, Parliament's gone back, albeit socially distanced. The civil service needs to set an example. So do the teaching unions, of course. If the teachers don't go back, then the whole country is economically hostage. As well as the, the the teaching issue, I think what we're going to be talking about a lot over the next few weeks is the end of uh, the so-called furloughing schemes, because as of uh, October, the furloughing scheme will be ended completely. But between now and then, employers are gradually going to have to pay more of the 80% of the wages that the government has been paying to date, going up in 20% mm. uh, increments. And that means you are going to unfortunately see a lot more people laid off. I mean, what happens if you come back from Spain and you're in quarantine? This will only affect a few people, hopefully. But then you can't go back to work because of the quarantine. Uh, I mean, what's the employer meant to do? There could could be lawsuits. People could be laid off during that period. Uh, There there are going to be some very hard cases. The government has said in perhaps the first display of the tough decisions that they're going to have to make. The government has said those people won't necessarily qualify for special assistance. They'll just have to look for 
you know, income support and universal credit. I mean, that's a big step that the government is taking there to not compensate people if it's put them in quarantine at less than 24 hours notice when they've come back from a holiday that they were legally allowed to take and they will have waited for for months to take in Spain. Yes. I, I mean, I think that is, it's, I suppose if you have to kind of sum up what has really, which bit of the whole machinery of government has worked badly. I think it is, has been without doubt the whole way communications, you know, they haven't got the message across in a straightforward, simple way. And they have been very late at getting the message across. I mean, I'm not, I'm not here talking about, you know, the lockdown and all of that kind of criticism. I'm talking about just how do you make sure people understand what the latest message is. And it was very clear people were going to go. And I mean, the Secretary of State for Transport went on holiday, was, was off to Spain. So clearly it was legal. And then if something happens at such short notice, you really do need to expect that the government will help in some way or that the um, the insurance companies are able to cough up. And I doubt if they will want to because they will, unless they've actually covered the person, knowing that a quarantine could come. There, there's no way the insurance companies will cough up because it will set a precedent of, you know, more hard cases to come and there will be many, many tough decisions. If the insurance companies cough up on this, then they're going to have to cough up in many, many other instances where people are forced to not go to work for reasons which are clearly beyond their control. Being positive, you've you've got your fifty pounds for your bike, <laughs> Liam. I mean, honestly, that that did. And you can cycle your state subsidised bike to your state subsidised eat out to help out wishes dishes. You and I, Kate, we can go for a, we can go for a Nando's chicken, okay, on on the state, and that would uh, that will help the recovery. at the same time trying to be healthy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> trying to trying to stop obesity. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea... Please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! First, I want us to listen to our latest Planet Normal guest. And I'm delighted to say that this week we're joined by Claire Fox. Claire heads up the Academy of Ideas. She's a well-known commentator. And even though she's from the left of politics... She joined Nigel Farage's Brexit party, playing a big role in campaigning ahead of the pivotal May 2019 European elections. The Brexit party won those elections, of course. They got 30% of the vote. They thrashed the Tories, the Labour Party. They thrashed the Lib Dems. And that ousted Theresa May as Tory leader. I started by asking Claire how the political debates of the 70s and 80s, those debates we heard in our younger days, compared with what passes for political discourse today. The political elite did actually say what they thought in the past. And you had a sense that there was a lot more going on. There was real argument, real discussion and real debate. If you think about 
the atmosphere that we work in at the moment. People are constantly walking on eggshells in case they misspeak, in case they say something which will grab a headline. There's a fear about that you will be, especially at the moment, cancelled if you say the wrong thing. What language do you use? What words can you use to describe certain issues? So what we now have are people who feel as though they've been very scripted, pre-prepared and playing safe. And I think that in the end, that's bland and boring and anodyne. And, you know, it's also the case that what is acceptable political discussion has narrowed completely. You know, there's only certain amount of things you're allowed to say for fear of falling foul of, you know, being kicked out of polite society. There's a kind of censoriousness in the air. What's the role of the BBC been, Claire, in your view, in creating this sense that there's only certain opinions that we're allowed to hold or we end up being cancelled? Well, it's it's interesting about the BBC because I always want to defend it. You know, I defend its ideal role in a kind of Rethian sense. Yeah, and me too. I agree. Yeah, you know, because there's a lot of defund the BBC and, you know, scum media, hashtag one I particularly... But unless dislike. they shape up, they're going to lose it, right? Absolutely, because I, what I was going to say was that the BBC at the moment unbeknownst to itself almost doesn't realize that it itself has narrowed what opinions are acceptable yes they allow people like me on that's true but you always feel I mean I always feel when I'm invited on one of these different shows and I'm not suggesting I don't get platforms but there's a sense in which you're invited on as the kind of slightly mad eccentric woman who's going to say something you know so that they can say they've got balance they get the kind of lunatic fringing. In other words, you're not taken seriously in that way. And I do sadly have to admit that the BBC's outlook, or certainly it appears like this, is completely conventional. It thinks it's being hip and with the moment when, in fact, it reproduces any particular fashion of the day and then goes on and on and on. That just drives me mad. And despite the fact that it's a slightly lazy expression, the term woke, but they are like the woke channel. So diversity of opinion is not something I now associate with the BBC at its core. The point about identity politics is that it is absolutely the dominant ideology of our time, completely has captured the hearts and minds of those who run institutions from arts organisations through to universities and so on. In that sense, they reflect the dominant idea of the moment. But for millions and millions of people in the country, they look on bemused, if not aghast, at the presumptions of identity politics, the presumption that we all understand white privilege, that we all understand that everything must be decolonised. And I think the problem then is, is that the BBC suggests that anyone who doesn't get it must have some backward views that need to be corrected. So the version of Rethian education that we have at the moment is a kind of cultural re-education of the population to catch up with identity politics norms. And as a consequence of that, they have alienated themselves from the possibility of even talking the same language to the majority of people in the country. How do you think future historians are going to look back on the last few months, Claire, when we're tearing statues down in the middle of a pandemic, 
Black Lives Matter is at the top of the news day after day after day. Police kneeling down in front of people who are breaking the law next to the cenotaph. How's that going to look? I think it's going to look like an institutional collapse, a complete shift in the way that we understand the people who run society. And this feels very far removed, by the way, from fighting for racial equality, fighting against racism. I think there was a a genuine international outrage at what happened to George Floyd. It brought to a head what people suspected might be some problems in American criminal justice and real concern that anyone could be treated so inhumanely. Then we have a conversation about racism, but that lasted only for a few minutes before suddenly we became completely consumed in self-loathing for anything to do with the West, everyone who's a dead white man, and that includes some of the greatest philosophers and thinkers that we base our modern world on from the Enlightenment, are now seen only through the prism of slavery or their attitudes from the past that are now not fit for today's moral standards. And so I think that history will see that this is a period in which we denounced history. There was a war on history and it was led from the top. This is not a rank and file grassroots movement of anti-racism. This is the people who run institutions and corporates and big organisations demanding that their staff and their employees have a black square around their Instagram picture, take the knee, all go on unconscious bias training courses, people being sacked if they don't go along with the very narrow and prescriptive view of fighting racism as dictated by Black Lives Matters or Robin DiAngelo, whose book White Fragility, which I consider it to be a, a form of racism that basically says that you are inherently racist simply because you are white, That book is now compulsory reading, being sent out by corporates and HR departments in all sorts of organisations. How do we get out of this? I mean, mean, what are we doing to ourselves? (laughs) Oh, God, I'm so frustrated. It's very difficult because you will notice that occasionally somebody will say, don't all lives matter? That's a perfectly commonsensical reply, isn't it? It's not as though it might be naive. And suddenly they find that they've been sacked from their job. So how we get out of it, I think, is to actually say the emperor's not wearing any clothes. And we absolutely, ferociously resist the intellectual domination of these ideas of identity politics. But it's very divisive. And my great fear is that people are now beginning to think of themselves through their skin colour and their ethnicity. How revolting is that? Something we thought we'd transcended in the modern era and we were all fighting against. But I think that therefore we have to say that we're not prepared to let them divide us and call it out. There are so many dangers though, aren't there, for people like you who go over the top, if you like, who charge the ramparts of narrow-mindedness. I mean, you're very good at it, Claire. You take no prisoners. But I know you and you're a human being. You bruise I mean, how do you feel when you're taking all these blows? How do you feel when people keep telling you, somebody who's campaigned against racism, against fascism, if you like, for most of your adult life, that you are morally dodgy, that you are a racist for just saying these things? How, what does that do to you inside? Well, you know, it's it's really revolting. I mean, that's the only way to describe it. It's the worst accusation that can be levelled 
anyone I think to be called a bigot in that way yeah and you want to just cry out with the indignation of it I recently had an experience we were both on any questions but one of the things that was extraordinary was for about 24 hours I was trending so that means you're a huge subject on Twitter on That's social that, media yeah, yeah for those, <laughs> my name was everywhere and what had happened was that it wasn't that I'd said anything particularly controversial on the any questions program but basically there was a kind of almost orchestrated lobby of people saying that I shouldn't have been asked on in the first place because I was a bigot and a racist and all sorts of horrible accusations leveled against me. I mean, I suppose it was an attempt at cancelling me because although I was given the platform, you can imagine the next time any questions thinks about having me on, they'll think twice because they'll suddenly think, my God, there's so much hassle. Do we really need the aggro? Exactly. You know, this is Twitter. It's not the real world. But when people are saying things like you're an apologist for slavery, you're a bigot, (laughs) you're a genocide, all sorts of things based on, you know, snippets of gossip from conspiratorial websites you want to correct the record but twitter doesn't allow you to do that and if you actually try and rationally reply or say something like that's not true you sound defensive so you can't win in that situation and there's no doubt it has a chilling effect it's not that you think i won't speak out again but you feel as you rightly said liam bruised maybe public life is too frightening and you want to retreat from it. And I felt very raw and scarred by it. Now, I'm pretty tough. My job, in a way, as the director of the Academy of Ideas is to try and create space for debate. So I should be quite hardened to it. So what it frightens me about is not me, but that if you're, you know, Lorraine Smith, a name I've just made up, or Jim Brown or anyone around the country, You see that happening to somebody like me. You just think it's not worth bothering and people withdraw from formal political engagement. There's just a sense of grievance and resentment festers under the surface. And that, of course, is the most dangerous thing that any society can do, which is to so alienate people that they feel bitterly resentful at their exclusion from the public discourse. Now, You'd been around for a long time on our airwaves, but you really shot to prominence when you joined the Brexit party to contest the European elections. Of course, a decisive moment in our Brexit journey. You took a lot of blows for doing that. Do you regret that you did it, Claire? I think I know the answer, but I thought I'd ask anyway. (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not, because I didn't do it lightly. And I suppose one clarification is, that I joined the Brexit party as though I joined a political party. In reality, it was a party that was formed and its most useful function was to stand in the European elections at a crucial time in the whole Brexit debacle. And it was a debacle in as much as it wasn't delivered. And so I only... Because the conventional parties had basically left the stage as far as millions of people were concerned. Yeah, Yeah. And and, and I felt very strongly that... If you remove the ballot box and democracy from people, you know, the, the millions of people could not understand why having simply done as they'd been requested, which was to vote in a referendum on a constitutional question about whether we should be in the European Union, that having voted to leave the EU, they were then introduced as racists, xenophobes, stupid, misinformed people who'd been influenced by Russian bots. I mean, can you imagine somebody like me thinking that I'd stand in a party that effectively Nigel Farage had set up 
It was an unlikely alliance. I had reservations about Nigel Farage's previous roles and ideas that associated with UKIP. But I did feel that unless we could show that across left and right, and no matter what your politics were, that democracy really mattered, that actually we were in danger of disillusioning people democratically for years, decades. So I stood. I mean, when you look back, it seems madness that really serious people were actually saying, let's just scrap the referendum and have another one. Or where would that have left us? Actually, in a very dangerous place. I mean, I do I agree. I do actually genuinely think that if you tell people that their democratic vote is cancelled, they don't just all go home and take up knitting. They think that's it now. If I can't change things through voting, then I might use other means. That's where we had got to. The reason I don't regret it is precisely because that European election did change everything because the Brexit party did so well and people voted for it across the political spectrum. And now obviously we've left the EU. But it did feel as though there was a coup, a putsch almost by people who were just not prepared to accept the outcome of that referendum. And one of the things that was we've talked already about the BBC and about what it's felt like in this kind of identity politics moment, it felt a bit like that following on from the Brexit vote, which was that the people who ran society started to talk about the majority of people openly in front of them, you know, how stupid they were, how anyone who voted for leave hadn't got any GCSEs anyway, or certainly, you know, there was no degree holders, you know, all these kind of things. You know, that I know were... I haven't got any GCSEs or <laughs> how many degrees have we got between exactly, us, Claire? <laughs> exactly. but, but it was that kind of like, what is wrong yeah. with these people? They need to be educated. So the reason I'm saying that was because we, we saw behind the curtain of the establishment, didn't we? Yeah. People won't forget that very easily. And I do feel as though some of this identity politics stuff at the moment, this feels like a, an alternative putsch. Actually, this this point has been made by some American commentators that it's almost as though this is the revenge for what they consider to be the populist moment, that they're kind of reasserting their control through basically saying that anyone who doesn't go along with them is a backward bigot who should be disregarded. And there's something in that because I think there was absolute fury that ordinary people took that matter about the EU into their own hands and voted against the wishes and against the advice of their betters. I personally think it was really disturbing how so-called high-ups in our society, politics, the media, commerce, felt they could just ignore the biggest democratic exercise in the history of these islands with the world watching. I mean, these people's own narcissism and determination to get their own way completely skewed their judgment, in my view. I've got one final question for you, Claire Fox. Something else we both have in common. We both brought up in Irish Catholic families. You had a Welsh upbringing. You're not the kind of person who was destined, if I may say so, to become a sort of prominent political commentator, but you're here anyway. How much of an outsider do you feel as you make your way among the British media and among the commentariat? There's no doubt that I am an outsider. I often reflect on, people now talk about privilege all the time. I have a very privileged life and I have been surprised that I've been able to get into some of the corridors of power and I have been very lucky to have had 
the opportunity to be on programs like The Moral Maze and to be given airtime and asked to speak at different events. And I definitely don't take it for granted. I'm always delighted, if bemused, that I've given such platforms. So I'm not complaining. But this podcast, which I'm also delighted to be on, is called Planet Normal. And the one thing that I do feel is that I'm quite normal. And I just come from a normal background. It's not, it wasn't socially deprived, but my parents would be bemused and rather fascinated to see the life that I live now. One of the things that is fascinating, coming from an Irish Catholic background, though, was that all we did when I was growing up was argue and talk about politics. I mean, you know, my parents, my parents didn't even realise that they were doing this. But, you know, they would get the newspapers and they talked about I don't even think they thought it was politics. We talked about current affairs all the time. My dad left school at 14, but he read vociferously and voraciously and talked to me the whole time about injustices, things he thought were wrong with the world. And we always argued So I owe it to them, I think, that I got a a taste for thinking you could argue out difficult moral and political issues. I blame them. And do you think normal people are represented enough in our media? Of course not. But it's also true that I don't want there to be special schemes for them. I'm frightened that we might have a quota system where you say, how many people have you got from local comprehensive schools on your books? I think that what the media needs to do is it needs to be open to having a diverse range of views. And in that way, they will attract people who are normal to want to work for them. Even if you consider language at the moment, I feel as though the elite speaks a different language. You could fall foul of the language on trans issues and gender and turfs. And even as I'm saying these words, I know that most normal people don't even know what you're talking Trans-exclusionary about. Trans-exclusionary radical feminist. Exactly. What on earth is that? The linguistic somersaults one needs to do in order to prove that you're on the woke, correct side of any argument excludes millions of people from even entering the conversation. So I would like us to basically speak plainly and clearly and say what we want to say, and that you shouldn't be penalised for that. And that, I think, would attract more normal people into broadcasting and into public life. Claire Fox, thanks so much for visiting Planet Normal. I think we're going to have to get you a Planet Normal passport. (laughs) I really enjoyed it, and it's a great podcast, so well done. So there you have it, Kate. Claire Fox, she bruises, she feels torn up inside. You've taken lots of blows as well, haven't you? Somebody coming from the left, backing Brexit. Why is it that the left is so nasty to people who it feels are part of its own tribe, but who have taken different views on certain things? I think that's a very good question. And, and, you know, you look back in Labour history and wonder if back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, there was the kind of almost obsession about whipping and discipline that there seemed to be over the past number of years. On Brexit itself, it was just one of those issues where you literally, I I know exactly how Claire feels about, you know, feeling an outsider almost on that, because within Parliament and on the Labour sides, I mean, apart from a few others, a very small number, you really did feel 
completely isolated from the Labour Party's because their 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 views were so so different from what ironically I knew from having been all around the country and speaking at people and rallies and so on were so different from what Labour voters were thinking about the European Union and of course that's all come home to roost now because they got absolutely if I can use the word shafted uh, at the last election and 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 that was so much part of it but Claire's you know Claire has. Her contribution in joining the Brexit party was absolutely vital because it did show then that the Brexit party could bring people in from all angles. Is this sort of almost a myth, you know, that anyone who was against the EU was some right wing? Nigel Farage was always brought in as being the goodness me, you you couldn't possibly talk to Nigel Farage, could you? You know, it was unbelievable. And Claire helped to shift the whole balance and made such a difference. She's right, absolutely right. The European elections were absolutely crucial and the Brexit party was crucial in that. And there wouldn't be, we wouldn't have got out, I don't think. I think the, if we hadn't had that good result then. But she's, she's very brave, Claire. I notice her on Twitter, how good she is at responding to people. I'm afraid I tend to just, if somebody sends, sends me something nasty, I just tend to either totally ignore it or block. And whereas she's very good at getting into a debate. She tra- she really tries to engage with people she does. who clearly she does. have very, very malign intentions towards her. It's in the name of debate. She holds up the ideal of debate above everything else, even above her Absolutely. own way, above her own personal comfort, her own personal security, if you like. She just can't stop herself from saying what she believes yes. if she feels she's being deliberately blocked. It's, it's incredible. So much of what she said, I totally agree with on the whole identity politics. And I think any normal person, you know, they will have agreed with practically every word she said about the whole identity politics and Black Lives Matter. And it's just been so frustrating watching people just, you know, literally knuckle under this demand that you must behave in a certain way. And the worst thing for me, as I'm coming from a sports background, was seeing the Premier League. It was just absolutely shocking to see them the way they basically made every player take the knee before the match and somehow that that was giving them a you know almost a free card then for the fact that actually in football could be doing an awful lot more day to day to get rid of of racism and to make sure more black people are involved in in at the management levels and so on so i am um, I, I just i thought that was a great interview you did a great job there liam <laughs> I didn't. All I needed to do was press the on button, and I didn't even do that. <laughs> she, she speaks with such moral clarity. I mean, that's interesting, Kate. You know, you're very well known at uh, Arsenal. You're a former minister of sport. You have a superb professional knowledge of sport. You've worked with black players, in particular. You were very close to David Rocastle, weren't you? The iconic Arsenal player who who unfortunately died very young, but along with Ian Wright, the two of them were brilliant as. Um, anti-racism ambassadors at Arsenal and indeed across the firmament of, of Premier League football. Yes, and they in their own and all the many other young black players who've come into football and done so well and now you know playing for the England team, which is wonderful to see. Uh, that, that in itself does so much to stop some of the things that used to go on in football when, you know, and you, do, you don't get the racist chants now that used to happen which were almost taken for granted and that's yeah. great but I'm not sure that you know people bending the knee 
you know, day to day makes any real difference. And I think it does. It's the fear now. And, and I thought that's where Claire was so right, right through this, the whole fear thing now about saying the wrong thing. And particularly for politicians and MPs, you know, you could see there were, I was watching it from outside now, it's been really interesting because you can see the ones who are still prepared to be, you know, say what they really think about a lot of these things. And then so many of them feeling they had to go along with whatever was the particular flavour of the day, what they had to say. And that's unless we can get our politicians to speak and say what they think and act on what they think, then, you know, we are in a, a really worrying situation. Let's move on to Europe, Kate. We've just seen this huge yeah. EU summit, the introduction of so-called pooled debt, the European Union making a bigger step towards the super state, if you like. How do you think Brexit's going? We may end up leaving with no deal. Are you still as supportive as you ever were of this project? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I mean, it was a great relief to actually get out, you know, in January that because right up to the very end, even though we had a prime minister with a, a huge majority and a commitment to getting Brexit done, you know, I had lived through three years of people in the establishment generally trying to stop stop it, doing what they could to slow it all down. And there was always this feeling that something might happen. So that was good. But as far as a now, I have a kind of one bottom line on all of this. I don't want to see us going back on any of the things that we 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 actually took back control of, we wanted to get control of. But I'm very, very concerned that we don't sell out our fishing. Now, I know fishing's a small, in terms of the, the economic GDP of the country and all of that, it's not huge. But it, to me, it's totemic. And if the idea that we have Barnier, you know, talking about... Um, you know, you're you're almost taking our fish. How dare you? It's just outrageous. So I'm still very optimistic that we might get some kind of agreement. I don't want to see any delay, which we now shouldn't have any more delay. And um, if we have to go with an Australian type deal, then so be it. The country's facing such huge changes because of what's happened over COVID that I think it really won't make a huge difference to us if if we have no end up with no actual official deal. People will still trade. And, you know, I think I, I, I'm quite relaxed about it. Probably a lot of people aren't, but I am. So finally, on to our listener emails. Thanks to all of you who wrote in as usual to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. One of the big themes, again, our ongoing examination of the health and safety practices of yesteryear, the stuff we did as kids that did us no harm. Yes, and we have one here from Elaine who emailed Planet Normal to say, my husband John went to St Oswald's Scout Troop in Oswestry in the 1950s. 11-year-old boys had their ankles tied with rope and were dangled head first out of a second floor window in an initiation ceremony. And those who didn't whimper were welcome to the troop. Anyone who cried was ostracised. Ooh. Well, I'm not sure the scouts would get away with that today. (laughs) Keep those health and safety emails coming. On another note, Hazel wrote to say, your interview with district nurse Holly was the best yet. It broke my heart to hear what she had to say. And I really appreciated her honesty and compassion. Please continue with your excellent podcast. It gives me confidence there's still a place where sanity 
and reason can prevail in this mad time. Yes, and I've got a, a similar one from Katrina um, emailed us to say, thank goodness for others who are sane and normal. I can't recount all the subjects you've covered. Suffice to say, your podcast should be required listening for all civil servants and every BBC employee. For heaven's sake, don't stop your broadcasts. You're literally our last hope in the media woke wave of blinkered London-centric journalists. Hear, hear. Hear, hear. <laughs> so that's it. Voyage number 10. Time to return again from Planet Normal to the madness of the real world. Thanks so much for all your emails. Do keep them coming. Keep writing to us at planetnormal.telegraph.co.uk. And if you've enjoyed us today, enjoyed the show generally, please tell your friends and family, anyone in your life who you think might enjoy the kind of discussions you've just heard. And we'd be really grateful if you could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is free to listen to, of course, on the Telegraph website or by subscribing on your podcast app on a smartphone. Now, as we say each week, subscribing to a podcast has nothing to do with being a subscriber to the Telegraph itself. It just means the podcast is automatically downloaded so that you never miss an episode of Planet Normal. And if you have any questions about podcasts, how to listen, where to find the best ones, there's actually a very useful article explaining all things podcasts, which I think I have to read now, <laughs> on the Telegraph website. And we'll put the link to that in the show notes of this episode. Indeed we will. And as we leave Planet Normal and speed back to our mad, mad world, Thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampett, our editor, Theo Leloudis. And thanks also to our guest presenter, my co-pilot this week and next, Kate Hoey. Kate, you have huge numbers of fans here on Planet Normal. It's great to have you with us. And I'll meet you on the launch pad for Voyage number 11 in a week's time. So until then, from Planet Normal, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him.